Hello, and welcome back to an episode of Self Center. Um, this will be the concluding episode. Um, so, in celebration of that, I wanted to round out this um, lengthy discussion of self with a focus on how selfhood interacts um, within the actual day to day life of a person. Um, because I think we're really caught up in like this, I don't know, difficult to navigate definition right now. Um, but it is a really strange and interesting phenomenon. I think that selfhood is pretty ever present in everything we do. Um, being who we are and being where we are and being what we are is pretty dependent on us having a self, even if we're not necessarily conscious of that self at any given second. Um, and our ability to locate that self philosophically is not usually on our minds, um, even though it is so ever present. And I think this is fair, obviously, because A, we have other things to do, and B, it's a pretty relentless pursuit to try to pin down something so incorporeal and so difficult to define. Um, and even as we saw in the discussion of therapy, even a psychological pin down of an individual self is difficult and can be like a lifelong project for people. So making a philosophical generalization about selfhood is really difficult to make. So today I want to talk about self as it relates to um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs um, and then round out um, you know, any final thoughts about the project. So that is where today is going. So obviously I think it would be useful primarily to establish a working definition of what the hierarchy is in the first place. Um, I'm sure most people have probably heard of it in some fashion, um, but if you haven't, I'm going to run through the basic outline of this framework. If you even were to just Google search hierarchy of needs, you're bound to see a pretty typical image of this ideology come up. It's shaped like a triangle or like a pyramid, and it is within itself sectioned off or tiered, obviously a hierarchy, into different layers or levels. So there are five layers of the hierarchy, um, and the idea is that you cannot level up or transcend into the next level until you have um, satisfied the needs and requirements of the level before it and so on and so forth. So that eventually once a person is at the, um, what I'm going to call the fifth or the top level, they've achieved or have continued access to have surpassed and satisfied everything that's in the levels below it. So I'm using a diagram that I found at simplypsychology.org slash Maslow in order to describe this right now. Um, they have some interesting writing about this as well, which I'm going to get into a little bit more later and I would just recommend checking it out on your own if you're interested in the psychology of it at all, um, just because that's not necessarily where we're going. But yeah, there's some interesting stuff there, and I'm sure there's like a variety of other places that you could find things. Um, so for now, I'm just going to get into discussing what each level of the hierarchy means. And again, um, I'm sure there are, you know, slightly different interpretations of this outline that you can find other places, um, but there are pretty much a universal five levels um, to what Maslow created. So the first level, which sits at the bottom of the pyramid and acts as the threshold that any ascension or any upper level achievements must pass, is called uh, physiological needs. So on this diagram, the things listed under the, need, the title of physiological needs are food, water, warmth, and rest. Um, so in a basic sense, um, 
this tier applies to physical, corporeal things that a body needs in order to be sustained. Um, It's pretty intuitive to think that without the means to keep your body alive, you aren't able to participate in other forms of necessity or other, you're not able to really act on other needs. For example, um, the ability to read your favorite book whenever you wanted to or to get promoted at work or something like that wouldn't necessarily be a priority or be extremely relevant to a person who is starving. So these physiological needs are the first priority in Maslow's framework. So the second tier would be entitled safety needs. Um, Along with the previous tier of physiological needs, this tier pertains to the category which is called basic needs. Um, So safety needs are the second level and they are Things like security, shelter, the ability to have a safe place in which to meet your physiological fundamental needs. Um, So this would involve, sorry, this would involve a reliable place to eat, a place to sleep in, etc. So again, in order to get up to the third and fourth and fifth tiers, one would need to satisfy both levels of the basic needs, which are physiological and safety. So the third and fourth, I guess, rungs of this ladder are both categorized as psychological needs, um, and then they're obviously broken down with a further distinction. So the third, which comes the first of the two, is called belonging and love needs. Um, So think friendships, maybe relationships, any sort of intimacy, closeness with family, etc. Maybe for some people, you know, this looks different. Even having a sustained sense of community, um, feeling at home in your town, having a network of colleagues, you know, however it plays out. Um, This idea, the idea is that this third rung of the ladder can be met by people who have already established a sense of physiological and safety satisfaction. Thus, um, they would move into uh, forging a community, forging a sense of belonging, a sense of love. And then fourth, they move on to what is called esteem needs. Um, So esteem needs are defined as prestige and a feeling of accomplishment. Obviously, this looks really, really um, remarkably different for different people um, because it depends a lot upon what level of prestige is desired or is realistic or attainable and what amount of accomplishment will provide a person with a genuine feeling of accomplishment. Um, So what I mean by that is, for example, a lot of people who are parents might feel that raising their children is the pride and joy of their life, so their career alone, even if it is fiscally viable and has gotten them notoriety of some form, would not satiate their esteem needs. Um, And for other people, maybe they need a fan base or you know, accreditation or something like that in order to feel a strong sense of self-esteem. But regardless, according to Maslow, meeting your esteem needs, however that plays out for you in your subjective definition of success, is the fourth rung and is necessary in order to move up into the fifth and final layer of the pyramid. So this fifth level, which sits alone in the category, the last category of self-fulfillment needs, is called self-actualization. So according to the website that I mentioned before, Simply Psychology, um, the definition of this tier is, quote unquote, achieving one's full potential, including creative activities. 
So the implication here is basically that through creative exercises, through this overall self-awareness and satisfaction of all the previous tiers one achieves or reaches self-actualization. They truly know themselves. Everything they're doing feels in tune with their, I guess, greater purpose or their, uh, they feel very aligned. Um, so those would be the five layers of the pyramid. Um, another distinction to make about the pyramid here is that there is um, a separation drawn between the first four layers and the fifth. Um, so the lower four, going up to esteem needs and beginning with physiological needs, um, are obviously broken down into the two categories I mentioned earlier of the first two being basic needs, the second two being psychological. Um, but the four of them as a group fit into the category called deficiency needs. Um, and what this means is that they are born of deficit. Uh, so the motivation to improve tends to subside as these needs become met. So if it helps, I try to remember the term deficiency by the idea that there's a decrease in motivation once they are met, um, which makes sense when you think about it. So for example, maybe safety is a huge priority to an unsafe person, but say they are able to secure stable housing and that's been established. So their drive for safety in their day-to-day -day life would be lessened. Um, and this goes for needs like hunger, community, et cetera. Once you find friends, for example, maybe your drive to find connection is lessened um, and the time that you spent, you know, feeling those feelings or acting on those desires um, is opened up for other things because you already have what you need to surpass that desire, or that motivation. Um, however, the top of the pyramid, which is self-actualization, is labeled as a growth need, which is pretty much the opposite of a deficiency need. Um which means that the motivation toward self-actualization is not born of a deficit in something necessary to you, per se, the way like food or shelter obviously would be, um, but rather it's born of a desire to grow as a person. So another important feature is that these needs and perhaps the needs before it, um, they all can be motivated by multiple things. So your motivation to move up is both the satisfaction of your current tier, the next tier, two tiers ahead, so on. But the ultimate aim at the top, once you have everything else, is self-actualization, um, which you're not missing anything per se and not being self-actualized. You just want to add something to your life. So it's not like an instinctual drive as much under this framework as it is wanting to grow like wanting to add something to your life and bolster and supplement it rather than needing to get to the base level of getting by the way the other needs um, are framed. So um, there are some different modifications to this as well, which are worth pointing out. And I think I'm obviously going to talk about it not being a perfect system. And many people have talked about that before as well, of it not being a perfect system. Um, some diagrams at another level. There's also an eight-tiered diagram um, that some people use. And the top level of that is transcendence needs, which would speak to things like religious pursuits and other mechanisms by which a person aims to go beyond themselves and beyond their individuality, um, which I think, you know, might get complicated when you want to think of someone who doesn't have the material means to even get up to the second tier. Are they not able to, you know, have that inclination towards God under that framework? So I think that it's a little bit muddy, um, the eight-tiered one as well as the five-tiered one. Um, 
And I think that there are likely to be some different outlines which have been invented more recently um, as well. But I'm just using, you know, Maslow's framework, the five-tiered framework as a jumping off point for right now um, for the purpose of that discussion. But I just wanted to point out that I'm aware of, you know, ways in which it might be problematic. And, you know, I think those are like valid discussions to be having. Um, So just before moving on to the philosophical application of this and such, um, I wanted to sort of point out a quote from Simply Psychology article, the Simply Psychology article that I read, um, that aims to sort of describe how this hierarchy of needs fits into a real world, real person's life. Um, Because like I was saying, there are, you know, quite a diverse variety of ways by which different people's lives play out. And Maslow and different modern interpreters of Maslow's hierarchy, um, have tried to sort of, you know, make it fit into a non-linear structure um, because, like I was saying, there's a lot of questions you could ask. Like, according to Maslow, is a life not considered meaningful if it never reaches the fifth tier of self-actualization? What if a person never has complete safety and thus can never fully satisfy the second safety needs tier of their pyramid? Is that to say that they necessarily can never experience community or belonging? So that's a type of questioning that the article is trying to account for in this quote that I'm going to quote from them, which um, goes as follows. Um, So they said, every person is capable of and has a desire to move up the hierarchy toward a level of self-actualization. Unfortunately, progress is often interrupted by a failure to meet lower level needs. Life experiences, including divorce and loss of a job, may cause an individual to fluctuate between levels of the hierarchy. Therefore, not everyone will move through the hierarchy in a unidirectional manner, but may move back and forth between the different types of needs. So, um, using that quote from them, what does this mean for the conceptions of self as I have laid them out thus far in this podcast? So the fact that self-actualization is seen as a motivation for growth doesn't necessarily make any claims about what the self is or should be um, in the sense that the sort of thought could be compatible with either conception of the self as I've laid them out. So this could be compatible with the self as an innate being or the self as a creative project. Um, so that is to say that if the self were an innate being, self-actualization might, you know, be interpreted as the process of aligning the desires or wishes of that internal self with your external performed self. But this is complicated because, again, if your self is an innate being with which you've just strived to connect, have you really satisfied all the past requirements, say, prestige and esteem, um, you would think that those bring you closer Um, to self-actualization things like community and prestige and esteem like I was saying Um, but the framework could be interpreted or might imply that gaining these other things simply buys you the time to one day negotiate your self-awareness and negotiate growth um, because these things are framed as deficits that you are aiming to fulfill rather than areas of growth that are aiming to supplement your life. Um, 
But I think it also would make sense to say that since you have food and health and a place to live and friends and success, once you have um, surpassed the fourth level, that the only logical next step is to move into investing this into yourself. Um, But again, I think it's worth pointing out that if you were to accept this view that the self is innate within you and self-actualization is the process of connecting with that, that you are agreeing to the viewpoint that the self is splintered, um, which means that there has to be both a performing self and an innate self coexisting within your body and both having a grip on your consciousness in this logic in order for you to be able to drive yourself through all the four previous stages of the pyramid and then turn into the fifth stage wherein you try to connect yourself with yourself. So you are in two parts there, acting as both the driver and the destination. So that would suggest that perhaps there is some way to be one connected, completely centralized self, but it's only possible through this sort of linear checklist satisfaction of needs and then eventually once you have all those things perhaps that's the toolbox that you need to align yourself with yourself um so the other idea whereby self is created um it actually operates pretty similarly in terms of its relationship to and with maslow's hierarchy of needs um and i say that because if self-actualization is interpreted as a desire to create yourself to the fullest potential um, in alignment with the idea that yourself is a created project, um, then how is that potential derived if not through a culmination of the previous tiers? So what I mean by that is that you might want to say that self-actualization is the culmination of everything you learn and everything you develop through surpassing the past tiers. Um, or even is impacted through your experience of those tiers, say the people that you're surrounded by or the specific home life that you're able to um, sustain and things like that. So you finally at the fifth level have the time with which to create yourself based on the resources that you've garnered through your four four previous tiers, if that makes sense. Um, That's sort of the way that I would interpret Um, a consistency between Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the idea that yourself is a creation. Um, And personally, I feel like I like that view in a practical sense, Um, but you do run into a similar problem as before because you still have to accept that the self is multifaceted. Um, You've been creating yourself your whole life through this project of movement through the tears, Um, but you must engage in a self-actualizing process still. Um, after creating that whole life for yourself so in that way you are seeing the self again in two roles it is both the creator and the project being created um so like i said the other model um holds a self to the two standards of driver and destination and this one holds a self to the two standards of creator and project um so they're not dissimilar and that they both succumb to that same fallacy um i guess or you could just call it the same idea of sort of a dualistic approach wherein the self holds multiple roles within the body and so the self is not really just one localized thing um which maybe makes sense to some people and is like okay yeah that's what i believe but i think for a lot of other people um 
the self is more of a cohesive entity. So it's a strange idea to try and break it up because, you know, if it can be broken up into two parts, what's to say it can't be broken up into more? Or what's to say that I can't put a piece of myself into someone else and like myself has two bodies then, you know? So it's, yeah, it's difficult um, to accept. And Additionally, furthering that, there are just a number of other problems which arise um, when it comes to accepting Maslow's hierarchy because there are a lot of places in which you might want to like stick a pin or call it problematic. For example, individuals with chronic lifelong illnesses, perhaps for whom that first tier of physical, basic, physiological needs might never be accomplished. Um, and this does not prohibit them, per se, from accomplishing career goals or community goals, etc. Though, of course, there are a number of hurdles for chronically ill people to navigate in our social systems and networks that have certainly historically disadvantaged them. Um, and sort of applying this with the quote from Simply Psychology earlier in which they were talking about people, you know, moving back and forth along the pyramid they're still sort of framing it as like steps forward and steps back rather than necessarily skipping steps. So I bring that up to say that movement through this pyramid seems to be pretty extremely subjective. Um, so I think they might have a somewhat solid basis in terms of trying to make some universal human structure of needs but I don't think that it's useful to use this pyramid prescriptively prescriptively in any way or to like manage anyone's trajectory because I do think it's possible to achieve you know step four without achieving step two for example and things like that so another issue um, with the hierarchy in itself is that it says or implies not in so many words that rich people have way more access to the tools for self-actualization um in a similar, you know, subversive way to what I mentioned in the career episode. And subversive was definitely not the word I was looking for there. Maybe covert, you know, not saying it explicitly, but it is sort of implicit in any of these discussions. Um, and I don't think that we should be aiming to deny the ways in which it could be true that more financially stable or financially successful individuals have a leg up when it comes to things like self-actualization. Um, if, and I think that would be or could be true if self-actualization does truly depend on things like free time, resources, access to creative avenues and the tools that are necessary for things like art, reading, writing, awareness of, you know, the history of those things through like traveling, museums, culture, things like that. Um, and all of those themselves depend on, you know, the money with which to do that, um, the leisure time, the, you know, space to have your alone time, etc. Um, but I think a question is, while I think those things, I wish that we lived in a world in which everyone had access to that. Um, the question that I feel like is worth asking about that is like does self-actualization actually depend on all of that um through building a full life say you have a job that pays your bills though maybe it doesn't a lot for more financial freedom than that but your bills are being paid um 
and your full-time work, it means a lot to you, even though it may not be, you know, the most financially extravagant life. Um, and say you have, you know, a very full circle of a very populated circle of family and friends who mean a lot to you. And so your needs in terms of physical and psychological health are met, um, you know, perhaps not surpassed, but are met. So who's to say you haven't, you know, self-actualized and reached the capacity of your potential simply through the act of living your life and the act of having, you know, a happy day to day. And I think another question too, is that say someone does have access to, you know, finances are not a restriction for them. They could do anything they wanted financially. They have nothing but free time. They don't have to do any sort of job. Are they just going to self-actualize by virtue of, you know, being born into basically level five of the pyramid? So I think it's not, I'm not saying that Maslow necessarily would have said that, but, you know, it's worth asking. So I think the main question that I'm getting at here through all of this is whether or not resources are necessary for someone to reach their fullest potential or self-actualize. And just again, for clarification's sake, um, I want to point out that I think we should be aiming as a globe, as a country specifically, I think our policymakers should be aiming for this to cover the ground of basic needs for everyone so that we can and are able to provide a genuinely equal opportunity for people to decide what they want to do more freely rather than making decisions based on financial purposes and out of deficits, making um, deficit-based decisions rather than growth decisions, um, like the distinction earlier that I made between um, deficiency and growth. So like we covered in the career episode, um, I think it's, you know, absolutely valid to say that career restrictions are a hindrance to a person's self-discovery in some cases. But I also think that it is mistaken that we socially find ourselves talking about selfhood as if it lies on the other side of all these other needs. Um, There's a boundary created between you and your full self in diagrams like this and theories like this. And so you have to then hurdle over all these obstacles in order to reach that self. But is it legitimately true that there's all these boundaries between you and yourself um, and you have to get over these obstacles, like I said, or is it just a function of social norms of capitalistic society, et cetera? Um, So I want to just say that I don't necessarily believe that it is productive to be societally ingrained to believe that you won't have full selfhood until you have career prestige or until you have a marital relationship and a a functional family unit or, you know, whatever other messages of domesticity and Maslow's hierarchy and whatever all these things feed into and what the implications are that they make um, in social messaging. So again, um, I think this is a branch of the initial question of whether selfhood is created or if it is faded innately. And in the same vein, um, are these tiers which are supposed to stand between a person and self-actualization real or are they constructions of the cultural consciousness, the political and social and economic imagination um, that we have, you know, as a culture and as a country? And 
I think that another thing that prohibits us from destroying or questioning these perhaps socially constructed ideas is that oftentimes the work which is seen as the gateway to self-actualization is extremely inaccessible. Um, So the most obvious quotes or the most obvious examples, excuse me, would be things like art or healthy organic food, which are seen as, you know, legitimate pathways through the pyramid and through these needs being met that require in and of themselves money, knowledge, research. Um, Similarly, philosophy, as I've discussed it in this podcast, gives so many resources through which to think about the world and dissect it and try to assess your place within it. And that's not to say that, you know, a collegiate level philosophy class will necessarily make or break a person's sense of self, um, but they're almost gatekept, these like readings and writings in a way that requires being taught. Um, And there's a podcast that I love called Bingetopia in which they recently did an episode about compulsory heterosexuality and they were talking about, you know, the different feminist theories and just different theories of sexuality in general that have, you know, played into and built that sort of notion And these are, you know, these can be like really awakening pieces of writing for people. And not to say that a sexuality is, again, made or or broken in, you know, a theory. But these can be really informative and really eye-opening for people in terms of their own sense of identity and the way they decide to go about their life um, and the way that they're able to relate to them themselves even and see themselves. And they are, I think the wording that they used in the podcast was deliberately dense. And I think that's very, very accurate. Um, And even speaking for myself personally, I don't, I'm not confident that I would have been able to gain any of what I have gained um, through learning about philosophy and learning about, you know, different theories in college and in school in general without the guidance of classes that I've had and lectures and professors who have these very advanced degrees and are able to walk their students through it um these writings are incredibly wordy and dense and maybe you know i don't want to prescribe intention to the way they're written but they are difficult to understand pretty objectively um so that i bring that up um as sort of a foreground along with maslow's hierarchy um in order to apply that to the context of my own thoughts in this podcast um, and how different philosophy and different things can inform our senses of self and help us shape them um, or identify them. And whether or not they are necessary to achieve self-actualization as a fifth tier. And if they're not, and if, you know, we decide Maslow's hierarchy is, you know, totally wish-wash, we don't want any part of it, um, where is selfhood then? And where is this real attraction to knowing ourself and this devotion to, like, investing in ourselves and, like, fostering an extremely healthy relationship with ourselves? Where does that fit in terms of our, like, hierarchy of needs or priority list or whatever? And so I want to round out the whole discussion, which I think I've learned genuinely a lot from, but which I think is difficult to compile into any one sort of definition of being like self is an innate thing or self is an entirely constructed thing. Um, And one thing that I think has become pretty abundantly clear is that 
it's difficult to say that self is entirely constructed because you need a builder in order to build that self. And who is the builder, if not yourself? Um, but I think that there are a lot of different influences. Um, for example, I think time plays a pretty significant role in selfhood. I think that you're more aware of who you are with every passing second. Um, and obviously, I think that can fluctuate. Um, but I think that our linear frame of reference of time and our understanding of time as a line, because that's the way we move through it on earth, even though there is Einstein's theory of relativity and like the idea that everything is happening at once. So maybe, you know, if we are to ever transcend this plane of existence, we would understand our senses of self in a whole new way and have this sort of crazy, um, expansive awakening of selfhood as a constant or selfhood as, you know, something that we really can't understand it, um, given the way that we interact with ourselves and the way we interact with time and place and things like that on earth. But um, I think something that I have learned, especially, and something that's become relevant in this episode is that nothing stands between you and yourself beyond maybe layers of socialization or um, you know, barriers in terms of understanding or financial issues. And I think that these are all imposed. And that's not to say that they can't have very real and very extreme consequences. Um, but to sort of paint a hopeful picture, I would really want to encourage everyone to find whatever practices or whatever hobbies or whatever activities, events, feelings, um, moments that make you feel the most aligned with yourself and whether that alignment feels like a project to you or whether it feels like a connection with something inside of you or whether that feels like um, reconfiguring your adult life to mimic what you would have wanted as a child. I think because a philosophical generalization is so difficult to narrow down that embrace the like psychological uniqueness of your individual sense of self and self-concept. Um, and I think accept that maybe everyone's looks a little different and that everyone's is splintered off into these different factions and um, roles. And I think that it's really key to remember that you have the control of your sense of self and you have the ability to connect with yourself um, in whatever ways feel like that to you and engage in self-discovery and discover even the ways to self-discover through experimentation with different things, etc. So yeah, I think that that is the most hopeful image I can paint at the end of this, but I do want to cite one quote that is from um, one of my favorite books. It's a work of fiction and it's entitled The Idiot by Elif Batuman. And I'm going to cite that quote real quick because this book is about a um, college student at Harvard and she's studying linguistics and she's engaged in this pursuit to understand how language influences her relationships and get this like really um, cohesive and decisive answer about how language informs her life. Um, and I feel that what's encompassed in this quote, although it definitely has a more defeated attitude than the one that I have right now at the end of this, um, I feel that it encompasses what is so 
difficult and frustrating about these sort of processes and why maybe it leads some people to think that um, certain philosophical disciplines like don't actually teach us anything or don't have any um, answers to bring to the table because they're oftentimes in situations like this, which really doesn't apply to all philosophy, but maybe does apply to something as broad and um, intensive as the philosophy of self. But yeah, I'm going to cite that now. And so at the end of the book here, spoiler alert, she has just changed her major from linguistics. She's given up on this pursuit because she feels like she can't learn anything distinctive and everything is so unique and individualized. Um, and so what she says is, I hadn't learned what I wanted to about how language worked. I hadn't learned anything at all. And why I want to bring that up is because I think I have learned so much through philosophy and through this sort of um, conversational project that I've engaged in. Um, but there is always something to be said for how little we can really know about um, things which are not directly sensorily observable um, and how unique and difficult it all is. But I think what it proves, if anything, is that there is something valuable inside of ourselves, something that doesn't, doesn't fit into any of the boxes or categories that we have to describe anything else, which is why it's so difficult to define because it's so distinctive and our consciousness is so, so much of a gift, I think, and also so much of um, just a very unique and very complex, difficult to understand um, being. So yeah, that is all I have. Thank you so much for listening. And although I did just end this off with a quote that says how we really can never learn anything, I hope that you took something away from this if you listened. So thank you so much. Bye.